Good morning, Redeemer. If you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1. That's going to be found on page, if you've got a pew Bible, uh, page 782. Or if you're looking on your phone, you can find Matthew and just scroll up six books. So Nahum chapter 1. And while you are turning there, um, I've got a question for you. Have you ever heard of someone talk about a pairing or combination of food that you had a hard time putting together? Here's some I've heard. Um, A turkey and peanut butter sandwich. Okay. Pineapples with maple syrup and mint. Ketchup and macaroni and cheese. And brownies made with beets. Now, there's probably others that you have heard of. Uh, And when you heard them, you might have thought, you know, I like each of those things separately, but when you put them together, it kind of ruins it. Or maybe you thought, I really like one of those things, but I just can't stand the other. And kids, maybe you really like your school lunch trays because it's got those big dividers because you don't even like your food to touch at all, right? Let alone be like mixed together or cooked together. On a similar way that we have trouble putting some pairings of food together, we have trouble reconciling some of the characteristics of God that we hear about in the Bible. Specifically, His goodness and His wrath. Oftentimes, unbelievers and skeptics, they'll see these two characteristics in particular, and they'll claim that God cannot be good because of His wrath. And some Christians will try to reconcile these characteristics by saying, oh, well, well, God's angry in the Old Testament, but he's nice in the New Testament. But must these characteristics oppose each other? Can God be both good and wrathful? I think at some point we have probably asked these questions ourselves. And as Christians, we'll probably be asked to reconcile these characteristics to skeptics or unbelievers. We might even be asked to ask why God would give visions of judgment against nations other than Israel in the Old Testament. And I want you to know that our passage this morning speaks to these very issues. The book of Nahum is an account of Nahum's vision concerning Nineveh. And Nineveh, it's the capital city of the country Assyria. And y'all, Assyria is one of the most powerful nations at this time. And they are known for their wicked and evil ways. And in 722 BC, they attack Israel and take all of Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity. And Nahum is writing in about 650 BC. And at the beginning of our passage, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, that's actually an introduction to the entire book. And in that section, in that passage, it describes God's nature, both His goodness and His wrath. 
So let's talk about how we as Christians can take refuge in a God who takes vengeance. So the big idea I'd like for you to take away this morning, our vengeance-taking God compels us to take refuge in Him. Our vengeance-taking God compels us to take refuge in Him. So if you would, turn with me to Nahum chapter 1. We're going to read, I'm going to read the first eight verses aloud. And before I do, let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we come before you at this time. Lord, I am thankful for your word, that it is not bound. Lord, that your word is actually your power unto salvation, both to Jew and Gentiles alike. Lord, I pray now that you would send forth your spirit. Give us a holy focus as we read your word. Bring to mind our sins. Convince us of our sin and misery. And point us to Jesus and his grace. Wash us clean by the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Lord Jesus, comfort those who are afflicted and afflict those who are comforted. And be with us in this time. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is God's word. Like I said... Our vengeance-taking God compels us to take refuge in Him. And I want to consider our text through the lens of three questions, and those will be our three points this morning. What right does God have to judge Nineveh? Second, who can stand before God? And finally, how do we reconcile God's goodness and his wrath. So let's consider our first question. What right does God have to judge Nineveh? Now, Redeemer, I recognize this may not be your question, a question that you are personally asking, but it's likely that your skeptical and unbelieving friends, co-workers, and family members are. In a world where relativism runs rampant, where a conversation about conviction can easily be curbed by phrases like, you do you and I'll do me. 
where we hold our individualism so close to our hearts that we believe there is no reason for anyone, even God, to merge into our lane unless we give them permission to do so. We need to take a step back and at least consider the question, what right does God have to judge? C.S. Lewis pinpoints the posture behind this question when he writes, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. Now, Lewis wrote these words over 50 years ago, but it seems that they still apply today. We love to take the place of the judge and put God in the dock. So what right does God have to judge? Well, let's consider who God is as Nahum describes him in verses 2 through 3. Look at the second phrase in verse 3. It says, The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. A similar phrase is found in Exodus in the third command. It says, Those who take his name in vain, the Lord will not hold him guiltless. Or in other words, y'all, God is just. And we see throughout Scripture that God, as a righteous judge, rewards what is right. He punishes what is wrong, and then he makes right what is wrong. God is just, and he's a really good judge. And for those of you who have volunteered at Upside Down, you know how hard it is to, like, judge well, okay? For example, two kids come up to you, And they're both teary-eyed. And the first kid says, that kid, he said something mean to me. And then the second kid says, no, 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 no. He said something mean to me, and he said it first. And they start going back and forth, back and forth. And you want to do the right thing. You want to kind of judge well. But if you're being honest with everything going on, you missed it. You didn't hear the conversation. But friends, that never happens with God. He is a righteous judge who never sleeps. He knows every hair on the head of the righteous and on the wicked. And y'all, he judges with all wisdom and all discernment. God is just, and he's a really good judge. Next, look at the beginning of verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. Y'all, he's patient. He's not a hothead. He doesn't arbitrarily sling his wrath like an unmanned fire hose. God is patient. But just how patient is the Lord? Well, consider Nahum's counterpart, Jonah. Okay, you remember the prophet Jonah, right? And he was swallowed by the whale. Well, God also gave Jonah a message for Nineveh. And when Jonah proclaims that message to Nineveh, Nineveh repents. But the book ends on an interesting note because Jonah's angry about this message and Jonah's angry that Nineveh repents. And you remember, God provides the plant for Jonah and then he takes it away. And this just leaves Jonah angrier than he even was before. And the last two verses of the book end with God reasoning with Jonah. And listen to what God says. He says, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and then perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Y'all, here's the thing. Jonah ministered roughly 150 years before Nahum. And soon after Nineveh repented, they went right back to their wicked ways. And then 150 years later, God gives another message to Nineveh through Nahum. And what does this mean? It means that God is patient. God is patient. And God has a genuine desire for all those who do not know him to know him. We see that God is patient. But let me ask you, are you patient with unbelievers? Are you patient with unbelievers? How many times are we quick to discount unbelievers' opinions or thoughts just simply because they don't believe? Or maybe you've read something by an unbeliever and your posture throughout it the whole time was just looking for like weaknesses and faults. And family, your heart didn't even budge when you were reading that. Are you patient for unbelievers? Do you have a desire for them to know the Lord? Y'all, we see this patient so clearly when God comes into this world through Jesus. Think about it, y'all. Think about his patience. He shared meals with the outcasts of society. He shared meals with the sinners and the tax collectors. And then, y'all, he bore with those prideful leaders of his day. Y'all, Jesus was patient with those he disagreed with, but he patiently loved them to the end. God is not a hothead. Instead, he is slow to anger, and he is patient. And 150 years after Jonah, Nahum brings a message of judgment to Nineveh. But what right does God have to do that? What right does God have to judge? Look at the first part of verse 2. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. God is jealous. And not exactly like that Nick Jonas song, or not exactly like the way that maybe Marvin Gaye felt after the bad news made it through the grapevine. No, God's jealousy doesn't stem from any kind of immaturity, insecurity, or inferiority. God's jealousy is rooted wholly in his covenantal love. If you were to look at Genesis 12 where God calls Abraham, God makes this promise to Abraham and he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. God is jealous for his people. But God is also jealous for his own glory. In the second commandment, In Exodus 20, God says the reason why Israel should not make idols for themselves is because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The Lord is jealous for his people, and the Lord is jealous for his glory. And like I said earlier, Assyria had a reputation for being one of the most wicked nations of their day. 
And they committed heinous acts against anyone who was subject to them. And y'all, Israel, the northern kingdom, was subject to them at this time. And because Assyria has attacked God's people, God will respond with a covenantal, jealous wrath against them. But Assyria's offenses, they're not only against God's people. Assyria's offenses are also against God. And now at this point, this is where skeptics and believers, they might ask the question, how? How can that be? How are Nineveh's offenses against others ultimately against God? If they don't claim God as their God, then why would God's laws apply to them? They may even think along these lines, track with me here. If I were to run a stop sign or a red light in Jackson, Mississippi... What right does another country have to find me for what I did? I am outside of their jurisdiction, okay? And therefore, they, like God, have no right to find me. And so if Nineveh doesn't claim God, this God is theirs, then isn't it outside of God's jurisdiction to punish them and to judge them? And for that matter, anyone who doesn't believe But here's the thing. God's jurisdiction is not only over those who claim him and believe in Jesus. No, God's jurisdiction, or in theological terms, his sovereignty is over everything. God is sovereign over all. And hear this. Before anyone ever bowed the knee to King Jesus, we are all held accountable by this sovereign God who is our creator and our maker. God is sovereign. Now, evidence for God as the creator of this world and all people in it is seen in his power over creation. And this leads us to our second question. Who can stand before God? Look at the second half of verse 3 through verse 6. Y'all, in these verses, God's power is on full display. By his speech, y'all, he rebukes the seas and makes them dry, just like the days in Exodus when God's people walked across the floor of the Red Sea. And then the mountains quake before him, just as they did when he revealed his glory over Mount Sinai by clouds and fire. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And y'all, if you think the clouds are high, they are just the dust of his feet. This God is transcendent. He is powerful. He is holy. And he is sovereign over all. Who else displays this kind of power over creation? No one other than its creator, God himself. Now, each display of God's power, it's stacked on top of the other, adding to the weight of the question asked in verse 6. Look there. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Y'all, the question is rhetorical, and the answer is obvious. No one. Not one. And we'll see that Nineveh and Assyria surely would not stand. For the rest of the book of Nahum, judgment and woe are pronounced over them. In chapter 2, verse 1, 
Nahum prophesies of a scatterer who will come up against them. And Assyria, who scattered so many in their day, will now be scattered and destroyed. And from our place in history, we can look back and read about how the Medes and the Babylonians, they joined forces and they took down Nineveh in 612 B.C. Friends, no one stands before God's wrath. Not one. And there are several purposes for a question like this in verse 6. On the one hand, this question is yet another sobering display of God's power. No one can stand before his wrath or endure his anger, and no one can hide from it either. At the end of Nahum in chapter 3, in a tone of mockery towards Assyria, who has mocked so many in their day, Nahum prophesies this. He says, You, Assyria, will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like figs, first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. No one can stand before his wrath and no one can hide from it either. But on the other hand, for those living in this world, this question poses an opportunity for reflection and repentance. Are you taking refuge anywhere other than the Lord? No one can stand before his wrath. <clears throat> and finally, how do we reconcile God's goodness and his wrath? Now, you won't be able to see this in the English translation, um, but all of verses 2 through 8 are what's called an acrostic. Okay? Um, if you're familiar with uh, Nat King Cole's song, Love, um, in the verse, uh, each of the verses, um, he says, L is for the way you look at me. O, for you're the only one I see. And it goes on and on. And if you look at the verses written out, it spells love. Or kids... Maybe um, you've spent time in children's church going through the big words in the Bible, and it's followed the alphabet, and you've gone through, I think you're on O right now, um, but when you list all those words together, here's a couple of them, you might be able to see this, starting from the top with Almighty, and then Bible, and then Christ, Disciple, and Eternal Life. When you list them out, they form what's called an acrostic. Okay, and that's exactly what's going on in verses 2 through 8. In verses 2 through 8, um, each line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it continues starting in verse 2 and finishes in verse 8. And each line, it progresses and it builds and it finds its resolve and its climax in verses 7 and 8. But this resolve combines something that might seem dissonant to us. It combines both his goodness and his wrath. Now, these characteristics, they are not mutually exclusive. Actually, in order for God to be good, he must be wrathful against what is evil. Consider Nahum and his circumstances. Okay, Nahum, he likely ministered in about 650 B.C. And just 70 years before that, Nineveh and the Assyrians, they marched into the northern kingdom and they took the northern kingdom into captivity and brought them into exile. And y'all, Nahum, he may or may not have been alive for that, but he was definitely affected by it. Whether he was, whether, 
He was displaced, he and his family were displaced by the invasion, and he ministered in exile. Or whether he ministered from Judah and witnessed this attack from afar. Y'all, he was left to ponder with and wrestle with the wicked things that Assyria had done. And the question that Nahum had to ask is, does God even care? Does God still care about us? And y'all, the resolution combining God's goodness and his wrath, it wasn't dissonant for Nahum. Instead, it was good news that he could cling to. In the face of unthinkable evil, God has not abandoned his people. He is good, and he displays his wrath against what is evil. And how exactly does God display his goodness? Well, look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord provides protection for all that are his. And y'all, his protection, like a stronghold, is made for battle in the day of trouble. And his protection will hold up, unlike those refuges and those fortresses that Assyria would seek. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And how does God display his wrath? Well, look at verse 8. It's with an overflowing flood. Okay? And that word flood, whenever you see that, you need to pause. Because flood is a Thanksgiving turkey Bible word. Okay? It is stuffed with all kinds of meaning. Just think about it. Flood is closely associated with judgment. Okay? How would God judge the wicked people in the days of Noah? How would, ju- how would God judge the Egyptians when delivering his people? Floods in the Bible are signs of judgment. And y'all, they are pointing to the end time judgment when Jesus will return and evil will be done away with for good. It is good for God to be both good and wrathful. He actually couldn't be good without being wrathful against evil. But how does our vengeance-taking God compel us to take refuge in him? How does he do so? Well, similar to the way that Nahum's acrostic builds and progresses, the story of God's salvation builds and progresses into the New Testament. And there we see something similar in Jesus. And in the passage that Pastor L read earlier for our call to worship, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And y'all, you don't have to know a thing about shepherding to know that bad shepherds let the wolves in. And that it's good shepherds who protect the flock. And y'all, what does Jesus say? He says, those that are in my flock, no one can snatch them from my hand. And he knows this flock just like those who take refuge in the Lord in our passage. He knows them intimately, and those in his flock can know him. Y'all, he's not just a power. He's a person who has made himself known and can be known intimately. And the story of salvation, it continues to build and progress until it climaxes and finds its resolve when Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life at the cross. So how does our vengeance-taking God compel us to take refuge in him? The judgment and wrath that we deserve for our sins by failing to acknowledge God's glory, by seeking refuge anywhere other than him, y'all, he pours it out on Jesus. 
Jesus takes God's wrath so that we might know God's goodness. Now, what are we to do? In light of this, what are we to do? Well, first thing is, y'all, Assyria is a bully. They are. They're a bully. And they're a bully that God puts in its place. And look, I know that each of you at some point in your lives have probably been bullied. Whether it was a kid growing up on the playground, or maybe it's a coworker who, who still hasn't grown up. Maybe it's anything that's going on in this world. Y'all have been bullied at some point. And maybe you have asked the question in the midst of it all, does God still care? Does God still care? Believer, you belong to a God who is even more angry than you are about the things that happen to you. You belong to a God who went to battle on your behalf and did something about it. You belong to a God who can even sympathize with bullying because Jesus suffered it himself. And finally, for those of you struggling with your own anger and hurt towards those who have hurt you, I want you to consider this. If God is even more angry about the sin and suffering in this world than you, and Jesus is enough to satisfy God's wrath towards sin, wouldn't Jesus be enough to satisfy your anger and your wrath? Please don't hear what I'm not saying. Your anger and your hurt is real. But this is an invitation to come to Jesus and to know his peace and to know his healing. This is an invitation to deal with the anger that eats away at your very soul. To seek him, to bring him your pain and anger, and to find refuge in him. Redeemer, Jesus is the good shepherd. And he compels us to take refuge in him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that Jesus stood before God's wrath in our place so that we might know your goodness. And Lord, I pray that you would take the gospel news and that you would impress it on each of our hearts. And Lord, convincing convincing us of its truth, Lord, I pray that we would live in light of it. Lord, that we would be patient with unbelievers. And Lord, that we would trust and know that Jesus has paid our debt in our place. Lord, thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.